0: let turn with me now in Scripture to the Old Testament, to the second book of the Bible, which is Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we embark in this great book, how we pray that we would do so with your blessing. How we pray, Heavenly Father, that all the riches all the blessing, all the things that you would have us to see, both of the glory of the triune God and, Lord, of this wonderful picture of Christ as our Redeemer and of the wonderful redemption secured by him. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears, our minds and our hearts to receive all these things, that you yourself would make it clear to us and bless us in it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So tonight we begin a new series in the book of Exodus. Now, as you know, Moses wrote five books, not one. He wrote the whole Pentateuch. And therefore, the context of this second book of Moses is the first book of Moses, all that is in Genesis. But in particular, again, as this one man was used of God to write all of these books, in these books we can be very certain of the continuity and context between the two of them. The particular context is the closing verses of Genesis 50. and in verse 24 all you have to do is look up from from where Exodus begins just a few verses and it says in verse 24 and Joseph said to his brethren, "I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land to which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And that's the last word of the book of Genesis, a book of beginnings, the, the book that begins with the creation of the entire universe, it ends with a death, with a man being put into a coffin in Egypt. But thankfully, that is not the last word. That is not the end of the story. It is merely the context, rather, for our story in Egypt. Because, as I say, the time of his death, it's a bit curious the way he said this. God will surely visit you, they were in no great need at the moment. This was their place of refuge, actually. They had come here from in a, being in a terrible situation of being in a great famine, and they came to Egypt, and this was a place of refuge. They were well treated by the Pharaoh, who is obviously grateful for Joseph, for the salvation that God wrought for all of Egypt through the hand of of his servant Joseph, and for his sake he blessed those people. He gave them to be in the best of the land, the land of Goshen, according to their choice, and... And everything was fine. But Joseph, being a prophet, prophet of God, he prophesied what would happen. And, of course, even though that things were fine for the moment, this is surely not where God would have them to remain because God had promised them the promised land, right? The land of Canaan, not the land of Egypt. And in order for God to make good upon that, all of his promises, two things were going to have to happen. One, that they needed to be in the land of, of Canaan, not Egypt, and the other is that they would need to be blessed and grow a number exceedingly because that was also the promise that he made to Abraham. Now, in this, now we begin this, this great story, this epic adventure of, of the Exodus. And as we begin now in, in the book of Exodus, as with so many of the major books of the Bible, it begins with a genealogy and the names of the 12 patriarchs. And the point is not just to tell us about uh, these people, but to make the point that there were very few in number. They didn't start out with a huge number. And through this, we have a brief recounting of, of how it was that the covenant people came to sojourn in this foreign land of Egypt. But then beyond what this very brief recounting of the, of the story, we are given two items that we would not have known had we just read Genesis. One is that the people grew greatly. So that thing that we mentioned, this promise that was given uh, way back in in chapter 12 and reiterated in chapter 15 of Genesis, that God was going to bless the children of of Abraham greatly and grow them to a huge multitude, well, it's, it's happened. And the other thing is the arrival of a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Now that that point is, of course, to set the scene then for what would later happen, for the enslavement of the people of Israel, for the deadly persecution of God's people, but also then their amazing, miraculous, wonderful redemption from that terrible, terrible situation. So this is the introduction. This is the the Exodus is laid before us. And in particular, what do we have in these first well ten or so verses? What do we have? A picture of church growth, naturally. Now, that may not exactly fit your idea of what church growth looks like. And we think about typical modern church growth methodology. It probably doesn't look like that. But this is surely that if we define the church in terms of God's covenant people and growth as being there's more of them. Well, this is a picture of church growth. And I have three points. One, the fathers were few and mortal. 2 but the seed grew. 3 the enemy grew fearful. A picture of church growth. And our first point is the fathers were few and mortal. Verse 1 now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan, Abthali, Gad and Asher. And let me just say, God cares about names. He is going to soon enough go on to to give a number, the number 70. But before he gives a number 70, he gives names because God cares about names. We are not just a number to him. He knows the name, as we know from the Gospel of John. He knows the name of each and every one of his people. These are the ones that the Father has given to him, and he will not lose track even at any time. He will not lose track of a single one of his sheep, a single one of his people. He knows them all by name. He calls them by name. You know that. When he calls his own people forth, he calls us by our name. Furthermore, he gives us a new name as we are in him. But he cares about our names. And so far from losing track of any one of us at any time or forgetting our names, he will never lose track for even a moment and certainly never lose us forever. But in particular, beyond just an emphasis on names, there is a particular emphasis throughout the whole word of God on the names of the patriarchs. How many times do we encounter the names of the patriarchs? We just read in Revelation chapter 7. They appear there. They appear in in various places. God wants us to know those names, to remember those names, to count them as he does as significant Because God has made covenant promises. And if we are in Christ, we are the seed of Abraham. If we're in Christ, we are part of this group, of this great family of God's people. And by knowing the name of Abraham, we know the name of our father. By knowing the names of these patriarchs, we know the name of our ancestors in the faith. And it is worth our noting these things. Anyhow, as I say, he does go on to Numbers. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was already in Egypt. What's the point of that? What's the point of saying the 70 persons? Because they've grown a little bit in the time, okay? So from the end of Genesis there, as Joseph lay dying, and there he's put in the coffin to the beginning of of Exodus, uh, time has passed, and those people have grown uh, tremendously. And we'll speak about that in our next point. But for the moment, we should think how just comparatively small that number of people was. Just 70 persons. Not great. Matthew Henry says this, Note, it is good for those whose latter end greatly increases often to remember how small their beginning was. And we, if we are to think of the people of God, think of the, the Old Testament people, and we sometimes think of them in their settled state, and they were a numerous and great people in various times, we should not forget how they started. That in a very brief span of, span of time, they went from uh, just these few people, this one man from there to the 70 who came to, to Egypt, and there from the, the, the millions that left from the land. Now, that's what his course has said in Hebrews eleven twelve. Therefore, from one man and from him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Have you ever gotten the idea that God sometimes delights in taking situations that seem to be small and insignificant and almost hopeless and to do great things through them? It seems to me that he seems to delight in that. A great part of his glory consists in finding those situations, using those situations which seem utterly hopeless. Again, here's one man, childless, in his old age, as good as dead, and yet from him would come this innumerable multitude, as innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. But how much would it have been diminished had we instead heard already that a, a young man who is incredibly uh, fertile and already had twenty sons at the very beginning, and that nation was already in the thousands by the time that they went to, to Egypt, that would in some way be dim- diminished then the, the glory of God as he more directly and immediately intercedes to deal with this situation to bring blessing of it. The fathers were few in number, and they were also mortal. It was in verse six, and Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. Now, in one sense, this is just a fulfillment of what happened in in Genesis, in the very beginning. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the the wages of sin, they are, are death. And with very few exceptions, in every last person, because we are sinners, we will surely die. And the fact that Joseph died and the fact that his brothers died and the fact that all that generation died actually just confirm what God had said at the beginning of the previous book. But the main point I want to make here is not only that they died, but that they died without seeing what would happen. They were few. They were mortal, and that means that they didn't see the end of it in their own day. They died before they did. There was a promise given, both in terms of the land, the land of Canaan. They weren't in that land anymore. They didn't own in it. You remember, what part of that land did, did uh, Jacob or his, his sons own? You know, right? A tomb. That's all. That's all the land that they actually owned was just a place to, to, to bury. And so there they were in Egypt, and the land hadn't happened and what about the people, this innumerable people whom no one could number? It'd be like the, the sand of the seashore. It'd be like the stars in the sky, which even now today we cannot number. It hadn't happened. They lived and they died and they did not see the fulfillment of God's promises. That's the point that we have in Hebrews chapter 11, this great faith chapter. That's the exact point, Hebrews eleven twelve. 12. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died. Just stop right there. that's, That's what we've heard. Joseph died. The brothers died. That whole generation died. These all died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They didn't see it. They had to walk by faith. There was a promise. They lived and they died without actually seeing the fulfillment of it. Now that, brothers and sisters, is the, the lot of, of almost all of God's people throughout all of time. Yes, there have been exceptions. And there shall be exceptions, as we have noted with those who are here and remain when the Lord returns. But for the vast majority of us, we will live and we will die having not seen the promises. We will not see heaven. We will not even see Christ himself. And all the things that are promised of us, these remain in the future, never to be seen with our mortal eyes, this side of eternity. And that is the life that we are called to live as God's people. It is by faith. That is the nature of the Christian religion. There there is no other way. There is no alternative here. There are many false religions that would have us to walk by sight. But just because what what we said this morning is true of the already and not yet, yes, of Christ having come, yes, of Christ having accomplished redemption, yes, of Christ now building up his kingdom spiritually, but of course, It's a kingdom that comes without observation because that's true. Because it's a salvation by grace through faith in this gospel, this promise, we cannot possibly walk by sight. We must be content to live and to die not having seen the fulfillment of God's good promises to us. These things having seen afar off, we're assured of them. How about that? Embrace them. That's my preferred way of speaking of what faith looks like hearing a promise and embracing it and so we should do with the promise of the gospel christ died that you might live all those who put their faith in him will have eternal life you embrace that promise and you're saved well we'll not see the end but we must continually have before us what we know To be the case, they were assured of those things. Hebrews says, and we can be well assured of these things. There was, of course, a point for why I I read through through Revelation, Revelation chapter seven. You must continually have before you that picture given in Revelation 7, 9. And I, after these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb the picture is there we we might as well have it on our, our phones john saw it it's been transcribed it's been given to us it's all true every one of those promises that were given to god's people they are to be fulfilled it will happen in the sense of god's own mind it has happened and we shall live to see it but we must walk by faith well, those fathers, they were few, and they were mortal, and they died not having seen the end of these things, but they walked by faith. But secondly, let me say that the seed grew. Well they might have started out very small, but it didn't stay that way. In verse seven, then the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. It just goes on and on. It wasn't just that, and there's more of them, they were fruitful. They increased, but they didn't just increase, they increased abundantly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly mighty. I don't know if the Hebrew language affords any more way to, to any further amplification than what was available, what was used to explain just how fruitful they were. This growth was amazing. And I would say all the more amazing that it was in this, this place of Egypt. This was not a tree growing in its native environment. It was transplanted into this foreign soil. Yet God in his goodness blessed them greatly there, blessed them abundantly. Now, if the fact that the patriarchs died was merely a fulfillment of what was said earlier in Genesis, that those who sin are going to die, so likewise the fact that God's people we're going to uh, be fruitful and multiply, we're li- that's likewise a fulfillment of something else. It's called the procreation mandate in Genesis one twenty-two. And God blessed them saying, this is speaking to, first of all, to the animals in, in 1.22. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And God blessed them. In verse 28 now, he's speaking to, to, uh, to to man, speaking to the man he's created. He created them male and female in his image. And then in verse 22, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That was the mandate given to the man and the woman. And that mandate was then reiterated after the flood. In some sense, the flood was kind of a picture of the destruction of the world that then was and sort of a new creation of it and in Genesis nine one, then it's reiterated. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, What? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so again, by the way, in verse seven, if that wasn't enough. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. And so between this this procreation mandate and between the promise and specifically given to God's people, then What we see in in verse 7 is a fulfillment of those things. That God's people were were doing what God had called them to do, which is to be fruitful and multiply, and the Lord blessed them greatly in it. The children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. Now, of course, we understand that this is only possible with a good hand of the Lord upon them. That only happens because he has, is determined to build his own church. We understand, by the way, that the, the, the whole origin of the covenant people attended with many difficulties. Okay? It's not just Abraham. That's certainly the beginning of it. We know, for instance, that Sarah was barren until old age. And then there was one child. That's it. And we sometimes forget that one child was married to someone who was also barren for a time. Genesis twenty-five twenty-one reminds us of that. And then Rachel was barren for some significant time beyond that. So really, these, multi, these, these difficulties, you know, there are were more than one of these things. And we understand likewise that in our own time, what we would maybe desire to be the case isn't always the case. There are many difficulties and likewise of various other things. That we understand that if the net result is that God's people are multiplied, if they grow from one generation to the next, this is a hand of God upon that people. A fulfillment of this mandate and a fulfillment of his promises. It's to God's glory. And that's the way it should be. If we were to look at that and say, well, these clever people, they did so very well in, in multiplying so exceedingly and so amazingly in that brief span of time. That's amazing. And they, they were just very industrious sort of people. And, and that's the one that we give them to, you know, good glory to. That would surely take away from the glory of God in building his church. But rather, if you have the story at all three of those patriarchs at the one time or another, they're dealing with, with childlessness. And who knows what other things happen in the history in between that then we see actually the glory of God when the final result is given. We see the glory of God. The seed grew. Now, all these things are are said of the aspect of God's growing his church through covenant growth, through the biological growth. And, and of course, it can't just be that. They also need to be uh, worn up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord for this true religion to carry on from one generation to the next. But we can certainly apply that, extend that to the situation of the church generally. There will be lots and lots of difficulties attended with God's people, and there ever has been. And we sometimes look around at the church and say, how is this church ever going to grow? But see, that's just the context for God's goodness. And amazingly, from very small beginnings, bringing about wonderful ends. Because keep in mind, the beginning was Abraham, and he is good as dead. What's the end? It's Revelation chapter 7. A number whom no man could number. The seed grew. Thirdly, as the seed is growing, what else is going to happen? Well, the enemy grew Fearful. In verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, very briefly, this was more than likely the coming of a new and an unrelated uh, dynasty uh, from the south that supplanted the previous dynasty in Egypt, and that's why he didn't know Joseph. If it was merely a descendant of the original uh, pharaoh, that uh, Joseph served than he would have known. But no, this is probably this new and unrelated dynasty that has arisen. And he says in verse 9, he says to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. And i just stop there to say, this is, of course, going to be the response of the seed of the serpent. Yet another theme that we see coming to its maturity in the book of Exodus that so comes from earlier on in Genesis, of course, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. We spoke about it this morning again. Genesis 3.15, it's the story, it's the overarching story of the whole Bible, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Now, as God is blessing the seed of the woman, what do you think Satan is thinking about all this? Does he, does he say, no, that's, that's fine, No, he's with dismay, generation by generation. How many more children are they going to have? This is crazy. They're they're growing and growing and growing. and, and, And it's enormous and they're mighty. God has blessed them greatly. What's going to happen? His kingdom is threatened. And so Pharaoh, as we're going to see in the course of Exodus, Pharaoh is absolutely an image and portrait of Satan, a pure picture of Satan, he and his malice. And wickedness, hatred towards the people of God, and his designs to destroy them. And so, of course, whenever God blesses his people, whenever he builds up his church, there will be opposition because why? There is fear from the enemy. The enemy is threatened by it. So he says, Come, let us deal openly. No, Satan doesn't do that. Please don't get tricked by that anymore. Don't think that it's going to be obvious. He's always shrewd. Who is, what does it say about the serpent anyways? Do you remember? That he was up, more up front than any of the other creatures? No, he was, he was more subtle than any of the creatures. And so, so this picture of Satan, what does he say? Let us deal shrewdly with him. Lest they multiply. That's the thing that Satan's so worried about. He knows about this promise. He knows that Christ has said that he is going to build his church. And what he is fearful of is that it's going to actually happen. And all that he does is in fear and in desire to keep that from happening. Lest they multiply. The very thing that Christ intends for his church. The very thing that we we look back and we say this is amazing blessing of God. This is what brings fear. And je- enmity and hatred and jealousy. And he wants, like anything, to make sure that the church of God does not multiply. And he deals shrewdly with them. Well, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war, and they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. So there's actually a couple different things, a few different things that he's worried about. He's worried about them multiplying, and he's worried about them joining his enemies. Well, that's pretty self-evident because, of course, they are enemies, aren't they? He certainly made himself to be enemies. He doesn't want, therefore, to, to, to face such a mighty host. But thirdly, lest they go up out of the land, you see. He does not want them. He doesn't want them to grow, but on the other hand, he doesn't want them to escape either. Brothers and sisters, isn't this such a perfect picture of Satan? This is exactly what he wants. He doesn't want you to escape his clutches. One of the things that he fears, one of the things that he doesn't want, is that anyone should ever leave his kingdom of darkness. And he will fight with all of his malice and with all of his skill and subtlety against people leaving. And he is absolutely ruthless in so doing and we should not be surprised that there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. Just to bring us back to what we said this morning. So, of course, what do you think is going to happen whenever God's people are, are, are built, being built up? Well, all of a sudden, Satan notices And he becomes fearful. He doesn't want us to multiply, and he doesn't want us to go out from his people to leave his kingdom. Very much a picture of Satan's kingdom. But see, notice it doesn't work. Verse 11, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. They enslaved them. Previously, they were free. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But, verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Well, this is the story of Satan's life. Isn't that great? I love that. The more he afflicts them, the more they grew. And that is the story from all of human history. It will be until the very end. Every time Satan, in his subtlety, tries to do something to destroy the people of God, it may seem to work for a moment, but it doesn't. It doesn't work out for him because God, who is sovereign, God, who is more wise, infinitely wise, turns these things actually in various ways that we can't even fathom sometimes, turns them to his own advantage to build up his people. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And that is a wonderful promise to us. That is a wonderful thing to hold in our hearts. That yes, there will be spiritual warfare. Yes, Satan is going to be subtle. Yes, Satan is going to try to go after us. But isn't it wonderful to know that that's not going to thwart God's promises ultimately? Actually, he's going to use them to his own benefit and to the thwarting and ultimate destruction of the enemy, Satan. And what's the result of that? They try, they fail, doesn't work. They even grow more and more They were in dread of the children of Israel. So first, there's just the implication of fear. As this growing, this threat is is growing in the mind and the horizon of, of Pharaoh, this picture of Satan. And then as they try to afflict them and what they're trying doesn't work, now they're in dread of these people. Brothers and sisters, I want us to understand. I want you to remember Lest we be fearful of Satan. We are never told to be fearful of Satan. We should respect his power and the threat that he represents. We should be aware of him. We should not speak lightly of him. But we are never told to fear him. What you need to understand is that he fears us. We do not say that in a a, a flippant way. We do not say that in a prideful way. And we certainly don't say it individually. He's not afraid of me. He's not afraid of you. But he is afraid of us, God's covenant people, because the more he afflicts us, the more we grow, the more that God shows his mighty power and he is defeated again and again and again. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. Well, this is a picture of church growth. This is the origin of it. A very small people, they were few, they were mortal. They died soon enough. But God blessed them, blessed them greatly. They grew mighty. And what do you think happens along with it? It arouses the attention and opposition of the enemy. That's a picture of what church growth looks like. How do we apply this to ourselves? First of all, we should know that this generation will soon die. It's a very stark statement. That whole generation died. Now, they were extremely long-lived by our standards, right? All of them lived to be over 100. Most of the patriarchs, 120. In Joseph's case, he, was, he, was, he kind of died young relative to the others, 110. But soon enough, they died. And even as we give thanks for the seven years that God has thus far given to the church, what can we say? Well, some of that generation has already died. We think, of course, of that first service at DPC. Well, I was, I was only ha- half leading that sermon, uh, service, you know, because there was another man beside me. And brothers and sisters, he's not here anymore. In these seven years, he has departed the scene and gone on to his eternal reward. And then years to come, he will not be alone. And also in those seven years, who else? Ken Taylor, Sid Tate. They're not with us. They have departed. And one day that whole generation, the whole generation that began this church and were part of its growth, they will depart the scene. And we need to keep that in mind. Now, what do we say in light of that? Of course, first of all, make sure that you're right with God. Of course, make sure that you're saved. Believe in the the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives you this promise of eternal life. It's so, to my mind, so easy. But of course, it doesn't always work that way, that, we, that it's, it actually is, is explained that people receive it. But we do pray that all of you, all of you would make very clear your calling an election before God. And when we think that this generation will soon enough die, while you have breath, I would say this, live heartily for the glory of God of God live heartily not half-hearted wholeheartedly for the glory of God while you have breath spend and be spent for the good of the church for instance 2nd Corinthians twelve fifteen, and I will gladly spend and be sent for your souls that's what Paul said that's a right way to think about it we don't have forever this generation will soon die the question is what do we leave behind the question is what did we do for the time that God has given us in this world and I would say, all the while, consider your end. Just thinking that this generation will soon enough die, Matthew Henry says, note, we must look upon ourselves and our brethren and all we converse with as dying and hastening out of the world. This generation passes away as all that did with, who went before. Now, wasn't it useful To have our our brother last week preaching, he who has terminal cancer and whose days are very much numbered, I think it had a wonderful, healthy effect on us all as a dying man preached to us. Well, we're not far behind him. We are dying men and women as well, children. And therefore, we should consider our end. Moses wrote of his ancestors in verse 6, and Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. You can just imagine him there with his, his pen writing these things. And somewhere, somewhere, maybe even the, the staff at the hospital or the council, someone will eventually write of you, and this one died. Again, if the Lord doesn't return. The question is, what is going to happen now, between, in this time, between now and when somebody writes of you that this one died. We should live to the glory of God, and we should serve our generation. Secondly, we ought to pray that God would multiply his church. Now here I have opportunity to reiterate an application I gave just the last time I preached in the evening, which again has to do with the blessing of God's people through through covenant fruitfulness. We are really, really thankful that there is a mission to the Gentiles. How thankful we are that the mission of the church is to make disciples of all the nations. And how owed to God that we would do better at that. And that people would be flocking into this church from outside. How we pray for Christianity explored. But we must not lose sight of his intention to grow the church through covenant families. Because that mandate still applies. Be fruitful and multiply the marriage ceremony, one of God's purposes for the institution of marriage is the raising up of a godly seed. There's a number of, of things for the prevention of uncleanness. And so, but one of those things is the raising up of a godly seed. And that's, if you're married then, don't discount this great purpose. It, it's, not, it's not nothing in the sight of God. In this individualistic time, we, we think that the, the way that we contribute is by some great contribution that we, we make ourselves famous for. But in God's eyes, something as simple as, as raising up covenant children, uh, that's, that's a massive and, and, and huge contribution to God's church. And we shouldn't discount it. Now, of course, not all will be married. And even for those who are, we know that the Lord gives conception. And as I say, then he doesn't always. And even in uh, the case of of Ruth, he built Israel through one who died childless, Malon. So we understand that these things sometimes work more indirectly and sometimes more directly. But I think in, in general basic terms, we must surely pray that the Lord would increase us exceedingly, that he would multiply his church. You know... It's funny, even as um, the church has desperately sought to be attractive to young people, what has happened in this last generation? Do you know what has happened? It has lost all of its young people. Okay? All you need to go is to one of our other churches, actually in this denomination, go right down the, the road to the church and hall, and you will see that they have no covenant children. It can happen... It doesn't have to be anything horrible. It doesn't have to be anything crazy. And I, I, I won't even make any particular statement as to how it happened there. But in more general terms, uh, if, if the, 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 uh, we must pray. We do not consider it to be automatic, but rather we must pray to God rather than to our own methods. We must pray to God that he would greatly increase our covenant children. Not only that we'd have them, but that they'd be brought up and and solid in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, prepared to teach their own children in this one holy faith. We must pray that God would build up his church through covenant faithfulness. This generation is going to die. How many do we have today? Any guesses? What was it this morning? Seventy this morning, fifty this afternoon. Did you say seventy? That's interesting. Seventy. Brothers and sisters, all 70 of you, should the Lord not come in your lifetime, all 70 of you will die. What will happen in the generation to come? What we pray is that God would continue to build up his church. Well, thirdly, of course, we must look to the redemption. Because what we can be certain of, as we saw this morning, is spiritual warfare. What we can be certain of is that if God does bless this church and bless us personally, that there will be persecution, there will be opposition from Satan. And wonderful thing, this puts our mind on our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because not even in the beginning of this book can we forget the promise of redemption. What did Joseph say as he lay dying? God will visit you. And brothers and sisters, God did visit those people in Egypt. God did visit his people in the most amazing way, in the most, most central way, in the Lord Jesus Christ coming to this world and living and dying and, raising again, and being raised again the third day. And he is coming again. And we must not lose sight of that. While we are here, we are few in number and we are mortal. Yet God is building up his church even now and there is great opposition against it but we await the visitation that God has promised. He will visit us, and he will take us up out of this place. Let us not forget that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful indeed for your goodness to us, thankful indeed for the goodness of your people. If we knew nothing else, Lord, other than the fact that you blessed your people in times past, we know nothing else but what your dealings were with the people in the books of Genesis and Exodus, we would have every reason to give eternal thanks and praise to you. But, Lord, we know that to that we can add our own stories, we can add our own thanksgiving and personal knowledge of your covenant faithfulness to us. Heavenly Father, we know that we are few in number, we know that we are mortal. We know, heavenly Father, that we in various ways are prevented, whether from our life circumstances, whether from our age, whether from our own limitations and sin, and all of these things we it seems like we have so little to contribute to the larger picture. But heavenly Father, we know that you have more than once demonstrated that you are able to use even the weakest and the smallest, and in fact you delight delight in bringing great things from that which is poor and weak and despised. And so, Heavenly Father, how we pray, Lord, that you would indeed take the 70 persons that we had this morning and you would make a great and innumerable company from them in the years to come. Heavenly Father, how we pray that you would strengthen our hands in both of the ways in which you build your church, both in the in the birth and in the the nurture of covenant children, and also, Lord, as we bring the good news of the redemption to those who are members of Satan's kingdom. And, Lord, that you would greatly bless us. And we know, Lord, that we will, and we have already, aroused the attention of Satan and the opposition of the enemy. But, Lord, we pray that you would turn each and every one of his devices and subtleties against himself into the blessing of your people. And that, Lord, in the days to come, that we would take our part, yes, even a significant part of that innumerable company that we know will be there on the last day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.